Ephesians this morning. If you need a Bible, Josh, you grab, you tell one of our ushers. So raise your hand, Josh, just like you would in school. And one of our ushers will come down and they will hand you a Bible. Now, in that Bible, you're going to open it to the book of Ephesians. You're going to say, I don't know where the book of Ephesians is. I'm going to say that's no problem. Although your dad is like a master in theology, you should have had you memorize the order of the books of the New Testament. You will go to Ephesians chapter 4. I shall give you a page number, which is page 948. Now, if you're wondering, is Josh a real person? Yes, it's him. And Josh finds the 1130 service a bit too early. Which I think is awesome. So I just want to make you feel right at home this morning. Now, <laughs> 948, page 948. Oh, another of Mike DeVries' children, not noting the order of the books of the Bible. That's Your master's is, is in, the, in what? Biblical studies. Biblical studies, that's awesome. <laughs> Raise your children the way, whatever. Okay, now, I'm sorry, listen. This is our fourth service, and, we, now, and that means a couple of things. Number one, I'm loopy. Number two, we save the best for last around here, all right? So the deal is, I expect a little more out of you guys than anybody else. It is well known that you are the best looking and most awake service we have, and you are a couple of good looking men over right here. These two, beautiful, beautiful. You didn't get the call about the reunion. All right, let me tell you right now. Every time, every week, right here, we'll get together and bask in the glory of baldness. Now, Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a computer and you miss, because I know it's shocking, not everybody comes every week. The Bible is actually not meant to be broken up into 35-minute segments. The whole thing matters and the whole thing fits together. And so I would highly encourage you um, to tune in online. Whether you download, whether you podcast, whatever, because all this stuff builds on each other. And if you remember the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul highlights, here's who you are in Christ. He doesn't give one command except the command to remember. For three chapters, here's what God has done. Here's what God has done. Here's what God has done. In chapter 4, verse 1, he does a left turn pretty severely, and now he's going to say, here's what you must do. And remember, he frames this in terms of becoming who you already are. In the same way I was pronounced a husband before I had any idea what it meant to be one, but I was one. And so now the invitation in my married life is to become what's already true of me. In that same way, the invitation Paul's going to give us now is, in light of who you are in Christ, become that. Become who you already are. It's this, kind of, it's this kind of weird way of looking at it, but it actually is what separates the gospel of Jesus from just religiousness or moralism. Moralism says, do this in order to become this. The gospel says, you are this in virtue of the finished work of Jesus, therefore do this. In light of that. So, chapter 4, verse 1. If you're new to the Bible, this will be hard. Because it's, a, it's, a, it's two run-on sentences and at least it's not in English, but in Greek. And, and there are a bunch of like really hard concepts in here. So stick with us. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle with each other. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Bless you. 
But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, and then he quotes Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And then Paul adds a parenthetical clarifying comment that has the exact opposite effect. What does he ascended mean except for that he... Uh, excuse me, I'm butchering what is... What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe, right? That just clears it up. So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip God's people for works of ministry. So what are you? Ministers, right? This is a staff meeting. Welcome. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become a tour attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. If you were new to the Bible, that's, it's like, okay, I know it sounds important, but I'm not quite sure what it means. Paul begins, as he does often in his letters, he'll, he'll kind of have a big like left turn right in the middle. So in the book of Romans, 11 chapters worth, and then chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, in view of His mercy, offer your bodies. The whole book pivots at that point. Same in Ephesians. So three chapters, here's who you are. And then he says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Now, we have to understand what it means to live a life worthy. This is really critical, you guys. How many of you have seen Saving Private Ryan? Right? A whole bunch of us. So you remember the Tom Hanks character? Plays a captain in World War II. After they storm the beaches at Normandy, Tom Hanks' character and his squad is assigned to go find this guy, uh, James Ryan. James Ryan is the youngest of four boys. The three older boys have been killed in World War II, and the Department of War has said, we do not want the mom to suffer the horror of losing all four boys, so they're going to go get this this kid, Private Ryan, and they're going to bring him home. So this squad, led by Tom Hanks, goes and they go trying to find this Private Ryan guy. And the sacrifices and the trials and many of the squad die in the process. They end up finding him. He's played by Matt Damon in the movie. And my wife has a huge crush on Matt Damon. And that's why she married me. because we look a lot alike, <laughs> Matt Damon and I. And, and so they... Some of you laughed way too hard on that one. <laughs> and so, so Tom Hanks, uh, they finally find Private Ryan. There's this climactic battle at the end where they're on a bridge. And they're defending this bridge, and, and the Tom Hanks character has actually been wounded and is dying, and he pulls Matt Damon's character close. You remember what he says, right? He says, with his last breath, he says, earn this. Earn it. In other words, earn this sacrifice. Be worthy of this sacrifice. And the, the movie fast-forwards decades later until there's an older Private Ryan now standing in front of a grave marker of this captain played by Tom Hanks. And he's weeping in front of this gravestone and his wife comes over and he looks at his wife. This is how the movie ends. And he looks at her and he says, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I was worth this sacrifice. Many of us hear Paul's words as, as kind of a similar thing. right? Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And we, if we're not careful, we can read that as, here's Jesus on the cross saying, earn this. Earn this sacrifice. And a subtle kind of um, moralism starts creeping in that says, 
hey, look, look at the sacrifice Jesus gave for you. In, in light of that, shouldn't you do X, Y, and Z? And there's some truth to that, but it can very subtly become kind of a quid pro quo arrangement, right? Jesus sacrifices for you and you end up paying him back the rest of your life. So we can turn a statement like, walk in a manner worthy, we can turn that into Jesus hanging on the cross saying, earn this. Show yourself worthy of my sacrifice. The problem is nobody could ever do that. The gospel begins with the idea you can't earn it. You're not worthy of it. That's why it's a gift. It's not a deal. It's not an arrangement that somehow Jesus sacrifices ahead of time and you pay Him back on installments. The Gospel is that Jesus says utterly and freely, in virtue of faith, your faith in Him, here's what you are. Here's who you are. And then He says, walk in a manner worthy. Now the word worthy is the word axios, which means it's the word we get axiom or axiomatic. And the word means to be reflective of. It means to be fitting of. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. Instead of, hey, earn the sacrifice of Jesus, he's saying live in a manner fitting for your new identity. Do you see the difference? Do you see why this is such a big deal? Mm, Maybe not. Do you understand how very subtly, I'm going to keep banging away until you at least pretend to understand it, Very subtly, we can say, okay, Jesus sacrifices for me, so isn't the least I can do to sacrifice to Him? Now, have you ever had Christmas gifts given to you from your family members that you're not particularly close to? And they give a gift and there's some strings attached to it? Like, hey, use this gift to call me now. You know, or, I mean, like very subtly. And sometimes, you... The sacrifice of Jesus can be perceived like that. Okay, so Jesus dies in sacrifices, so now you've got to be worthy of it. That's not gospel. Gospel is you can't be worthy of it, and you don't get to stand at the end of your life asking the question, hey, was I a good man, and did I earn the sacrifice of Jesus? The answer is no, you never could, you never can, and you never will. That's why it's a gift, not a deal. So you have to understand, when Paul says, walk in a manner worthy, he's saying, live in light of your true nature. Why would you live according to the old age, the old self? Why would you do that? That's not who you are anymore. Makes sense. That looked better. All right, now, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. What's the calling you've received? The first three chapters. With the aid of modern technology, I will highlight for you the highlights of the first three chapters. Fire it up, Mondo. This is what I do, ladies and gentlemen. So, in Ephesians, Paul teaches, apart from Christ, you're dead in transgressions and sins, following the ways of the world, ruled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, enslaved to the cravings and desires of our sinful nature. By nature, we're objects of wrath, separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship with God's people. Foreigners to the covenants of the promises that God made uh, in the Old Testament. We are without hope, without God, far away, and we have no identity outside of whatever our gender or racial or tribal boundaries are. That's apart from Christ. In Christ, next, 
You are blessed with every spiritual blessing, chosen before the creation of the world. You are saints. You are holy. You are blameless. You're brought near your fellow citizens. You're adopted as sons and daughters. You're given grace. You're saved, redeemed, forgiven. You are the dwelling place of God's Spirit, members of God's household, predestined and included in Christ. Next. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit, recipients of God's lavish grace, recipients of God's glorious inheritance, alive with Christ. You are building blocks of God's temple, raised with Christ, seated with Christ, alive with Christ. And if that weren't enough, you are God's workmanship. Now that is good news. Would you agree? That's the calling you've received. So when Paul says, live in a manner worthy of the calling, listen, if that's who you are, Learn to become it. It's already true of you. You're holy, so live holy. You're sons and daughters, so live as sons and daughters. So everything that comes after this sentence is all built on the foundation of what God has already done for you. It's not just you being saved by grace and then working it out by yourself. It's all, whatever you've received, be that. Already. So, Paul spells this out, beginning in verse 2. He says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called, and one Lord, and one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. So what does Paul lead with? Make every effort to keep unified. Now think about how significant that is. Of all the things that you could say after an epic lead-in sentence, Paul says make every effort to keep unity. And he begins by saying, be patient, With each other, right? He says, be kind and humble and gentle to each other and bear with one another in love. Now here's what's fascinating. All of those commands imply the continued (laughs) screwing up of God's people. Right? Mondo, fire up slide number one. So he says, the first thing you got to do is build a community that allows for the imperfection of people. Although they are saints, they are imperfectly working out their sainthood. Although they're holy, they're still working out their holiness. And so Paul begins by saying, listen, you got sick in community, and so you get well in community. And brothers and sisters, you've got to hear this. When you arrive into this place this morning, there has been a whole bunch of damage you've done to yourself. Sin, rebellion, dysfunction, whatever. But there's also a whole bunch of damage that others have done to you, right? Others have sinned against you. Others have hurt you and spoken badly. They've disappointed you, abandoned you, abused you. They've said things to you that just stick. So we're not just sick alone. We're sick in community, right? It's it's not just we're destroying ourselves, but there's a whole world that wants to help us. So Paul says, wellness comes in community too. There is never an indication in the New Testament that says, hey, just have your relationship with Jesus and you'll be fine. 
You are saved as a people into a people. And that people then, every command Paul's going to give is to a church. And so he says, build a community that allows for the imperfection of people. I mean, I love it. What do you do? Well, let's see. How about be gentle and humble with each other? How about bear with one another? What does that imply? There are going to be people that are going to drive you nuts. I mean, I love that. Because there are people that drive me nuts. So if you are new to church, if I got good news for you, we are hypocrites. That's not our fundamental identity. But very often we choose to live out of our old identity and not our new one. And very often the mess of our gatherings means that we screw up. And so Paul first says, hey guys, learn to be nice to each other. Because none of us have room to boast against anybody else. We're all screw-ups. We're all misfits. We're all outcasts. We're all sinners and none of us deserve His grace. And because of that then, be gentle. Be patient. There are over 40 commands that talk about one another, encourage one another, strengthen one another, build one another up. And they all assume the imperfection of God's people. Because community, men and women, has to be fought for. See, the easiest thing in the world is to be around people who are just like you. So when you get a church, well, we'll get all the young couples together because the young couples, you know, and then you got the older couples and then you got the single folks. And let me tell you, I think that is horribly unbiblical. I mean, I, I hate to call it that strong, but I think it is. And here's the reason. Who do the young married folks need to be around? Older married folks. Right? Who are the people with young kids? Who do they need to be around? People who have older kids. Who are the single people need to be around? Everybody, because they need to be reminded their singleness isn't their defining characteristic. The last, I mean, in the world, people hang out with people just like them. The church should be the place where we fight for what true community is. And true community is never being around people just like you. That's not the body of Christ. That's not heaven. Heaven is every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And if you're not used to that now, it may be a bit uncomfortable when you get there. I mean, think about it. We do this thing, and this is not a pitch for our program, so don't hear it that way, but we do this thing called Rooted. And it's a 10-week journey, and we don't do anything else. We do Rooted and we do life groups, and that's it. We're not going to have a thousand other things to do. So you're going to get sick of hearing us talk about this because it's the answer to every question. Well, how do I get plugged in? Rooted. What if I'm new? Rooted. I mean, it's just, that's all we got. (laughs) And one of the things we do that annoys the snot out of people is that we put people in these 10, it's a 10-week kind of journey together, and we put people in groups that are randomly assigned. And so we graduated 120 people last Friday night. And I asked them, hey, how many of you the first night looked around at the people in your group and thought, these are not people I would ever want to be with? Every hand. But if you would have watched them, I mean, I wish I could show them to you because literally you could not get them to shut up. They're over the 10 weeks, serving together and sharing life together and whatever else, they had connected in a way that was much deeper than any superficial method of connection. Because community is never created, it's discovered. 
See, the church far too often introduces the divisions that Jesus destroys. So, once you, you have to get past male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. You have to get past right, white or black. You have to get past male or female, Republican, Democrat. You have to get past all of that stuff. And what you realize is that you've got a whole bunch of stuff in common that you never knew. Isn't that what happened after 9-11? Right? Ten years ago. At 9-12, America felt differently about itself than it did at 9-10. There, we discovered we had something in common that we'd taken for granted. There's a community that's built up. And you've got, Paul says, make every effort to preserve this. Because it's not easy. It, you've already got it. Preserve it. And that means the people next to you still sin. The people next to you won't always be nice. The people next to you won't always embody their new identity. And so what's Paul, what does Paul lead with? Be nice to each other for crying out loud. Be gracious. Be patient with each other. Because it all assumes the imperfection of God's people as they learn to become what they already are. Can I get an amen? Now, notice what he says secondly. How do you preserve the unity? He says there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. What is the word that is repeated? One. When Jesus prays in John 17, He prays what's called a priestly prayer for His followers. He says, Father, my prayer is that my followers would be one. So Paul, maintain unity. How? Because there's one faith, one baptism, one Lord. So, Mondo, you maintain unity by focusing on the center and not on the boundaries. You focus on what, there are two ways to build a movement. One is to focus on what unites us, and the other way is to focus on what separates us from everybody else. One is center focused, one is boundary focused. What do you think the church is specialized in in America? Boundaries. So to be a part of us, it's not just enough to claim Jesus. You've got to have this view of Genesis, and this view of Revelation, and this view of all these other things. Are those things central to following Jesus? I tend to disagree. So when Paul says one faith, one Lord, one God, one hope, he's saying build the community and preserve the community on the basis of what you share in common. What defines the center? When I was in college, I went to Burger King a lot. And that will shock you. And I met this philosopher in Burger King one day because you Philosophers are typically poor, so they're eating in Burger King. And anyway, I met this philosopher, and he said something to me that totally changed how I think about this stuff. He said, if you're going to get into theology, or philosophy for that matter, he said, you've got to learn how to distinguish between your opinions, your beliefs, and your convictions. He said, opinions are just your gut-level reactions to things. You've not studied it, but I just think you know about this. I just have this gut-level reaction. He said, beliefs are things you've studied. You've actually looked into it, and you can defend your view, but they're things you'd never break fellowship over. They fall into the category of what Paul would call disputable matters. And he said, convictions, those are the things you'd die for. Those are the things that utterly define the essence of what it means to follow Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, as a corollary, 
Your list of opinions should be the longest and your list of convictions should be the shortest. And you should never express your opinions and beliefs with the same level of intensity as you would express your convictions. Now, here's how I work that out. And feel free to disagree. But would you say the American church has specialized in turning everything into a conviction level issue? Absolutely. Hey guys, are the days in Genesis 24-hour periods or unspecified periods of time? Well, there are some places where you've got to have the right answer to that. I have, an, I have a belief. I've looked into it. And you know what? There are other Jesus-loving people that disagree. Are we going to break fellowship over that? Not even remotely. How about Noah and the ark? Were the dinosaurs in there? Yes, they were. Dinosaur eggs, brothers and sisters, is how they did it. That's a different story. Is the ark in Mount Ararat? Is, uh, uh, are all the spiritual gifts operating today? They're sincere believers that disagree. Are we going to break fellowship over that? We should not break fellowship over that. The dating of end time stuff in Revelation. Is the tribulation and then the millennium or is the millennium and then the rapture and then the tribulation? I mean, guys, I have beliefs on all of it, but are we going to break fellowship? No, we're not. Sincere, Jesus-loving people disagree. So I don't know about you. Here's my list. God's a trinity. Created humanity in His image. But that image has been tarnished and humans are now fallen and in need of salvation. Jesus of Nazareth has come in God in human flesh. He lived. He died. He rose again bodily. He is coming back. Offers salvation as a free gift received by faith. No earning necessary. And the Bible is the authoritative rule of faith and practice that governs the exercise of the church. End of story. That's my list. Now, if, if, if we encroach on those seven things, great, we'll have all sorts of wonderful civil conversations. But if you want to sit here and passionately argue that women should have head coverings, I'm going to let you. I wish I had a head covering. Right? I mean, if you're going to argue that, listen, there's this second experience you have with the Holy Spirit, hallelujah! Doesn't matter. I have, I have opinions and beliefs on everything in this book. But we will not make agreement with my opinions and beliefs the boundary for who's in and who's not. So we'll fight, hopefully and graciously, the right battles. And we will avoid the battles that are not as important Should you be fully convinced in your own mind? Absolutely. You have the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the community of God. So I hope you study. But when we study the book of Revelation next spring, the goal won't be for you to agree with me. Because I don't buy the how Lindsay thing. Shocking. Shocking. Maybe we'll leave left behind behind and see what happens. But, can you see how... You know what? I grew up in a church that that broke with another church because one church said you've got to baptize somebody three distinct times and the other church said, no, you just got to do it once. 
So when Paul says the defining characteristic of the church is its oneness, how we do in America? We're horrible. And one of the reasons is we have made secondary issues. And I, I believe it's because we're not persecuted. So we're just, I mean, do you think the house churches in China argue about some of the meaningless stuff we argue about? I would guess not. Anytime when you worship Jesus and you can be imprisoned, it kind of has a clarifying effect on what it is you're willing to die for. And so I just want us to be a community that is full of good and holy conversation and disagreement over the things that aren't the center of the faith. And for those of you that are new to the faith, or those of you that just go, I don't even know if I buy the faith. I mean, those five things, I wouldn't even buy those. Hallelujah. Let's have those conversations. But primarily, we just want to make the most important things the most important things. I will shut up now because I've overmade that point. But I get fired up. Now, verse 7. Now Paul gets a little wacky on us. He says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, and then he quotes Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And then he adds again the clarifying comment that isn't so clarifying. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Mondo, slide number three. Slide number two, here we go. So the first thing Paul says, in this section. Okay, so remember our train of thought. Hey guys, remember who you are? Live in a manner worthy of that. Well, what's that mean? We'll build a community of people that puts up with each other's imperfection, number one. Number two, fight to preserve the unity you have because there is one faith, one spirit, one baptism, one body, one hope that all of you received. And then he kind of turns a little bit and he starts talking about Jesus giving gifts to his church. And he does this using Psalm 68. Here's the idea. Psalm 68, track with me on this, is an enthronement psalm. It means it pictures Yahweh, that's the Old Testament's name for God, the covenant name given to Israel, pictures Yahweh on Yahweh's throne, victorious over Yahweh's enemies. And back in the day, if you were a conquering king, you would take the plunder of the territory you've just conquered and you would give gifts to your people. And so Psalm 68 is a psalm where Yahweh's on His throne giving gifts to the people of God because He's won a victory over His enemies. So, so Paul takes that and he, he turns it into this is Jesus. And so he uses the image of a Jesus who descended to defeat his, the powers and principalities, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now gives gifts to His church to celebrate His victory. Are you tracking with me on this one? Right, this is a little thick. So the idea is, there's a unity that exists in the church, but it, that, that doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we're all the same. In fact, Paul gives a diversity, Paul, or Jesus gives a diversity of gifts to the body, and those gifts are to be given for the sake of the unity of the body. In other words, if I have the gift of teaching, it's to be done to build up the body. If you have the gift of mercy, it's done to be built up the body. If you have the gift of administration, it's done to build up the body so that we might all reach maturity. Track in with this. Next slide. The reason maturity is so important 
is because the church actually shares in the victory of Jesus over the powers and principalities of this world. Here's what Paul writes in Ephesians 3. He says, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to make plain to everyone the administration of of the mystery. And the mystery is here that God's people, the Jews and non-Jewish folks, were going to be wed together to be God's people corporately. He says, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Next. His intent. Now this is where it gets mind-blowing. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In other words, what Paul is saying is a unified church stands as a testimony to the risen Jesus' victory over the darkness that actually what's going on is that a church that's made up of outcasts and misfits and screw-ups and sinners, a church that has no explanation outside of the merciful and gracious supernatural work of God, that church stands as a marker, as a witness, and as a testimony against the dark powers that govern this world that Jesus is, is, is indeed risen, He is on the throne, and He is in the process of bringing all things under His authority. Right, I mean, you think Albert can preach? I can preach. Right, Josh? Now, the unity of the church, therefore, the reason it matters so much is because when you get a church that's as fractured as as our churches are, what's it say to the powers and principalities? Well, it says we're just like everybody else. Right? We just... We just alienate, we just argue, we just accuse, we just slander, we just label just like everybody else does. Hey, I'm a Methodist. Hey, I'm a Presbyterian. Hey, I'm a Catholic. Hey, I'm a Protestant. Any of those words in the Bible? Not one of them. Not one. Goodbye, little one. She did so well for so long. Some of you might wish to join her at this point. However, we just have a few more moments together. You want to join her? Is that what you were saying? No, you're good? It's okay, bro. It's okay. Sometimes I want to check out on me too. No problem. My wife has a very easy time of it, actually. But the reason the unity of the church matters, and again, do we fight? Of course, there are times, and you see this in Paul, where, man, there is something that compromises, something that's absolutely critical. Well, of course we fight those battles. I'm just saying we fight, we fight so many that are unnecessary. And, I mean, can I be honest, silly. And so we stand as this divided body who identifies itself using labels that aren't even biblical to describe it. And what the world sees is there's nothing supernatural about that crew. I mean, Francis Chan has this great illustration where he talks about how I play basketball, and he uses it as a basketball player, and I'm not very good. Shocking. But suppose I told you I had a life-changing encounter with the basketball spirit of Michael Jordan, or Kobe Bryant. Right? Kobe, I had a dream. Kobe filled me with his ability, supernatural ability to play basketball. And suppose for weeks I go on and on about how amazingly I am filled right now with the basketball spirit of Kobe Bryant. And then suppose we go play basketball again. 
And suppose the life-giving, life-breathing, energizing spirit of Kobe Bryant did nothing in how I play basketball. What would you conclude? Yeah, bad dream. You had some bad pizza or something the night before. But whatever it is, isn't real. So when God's people walk around saying, hey, God lives in us. We are supernaturally empowered and gifted and filled with His Spirit. And then there is no discernible difference at all between how we live and the rest of the world lives. What do they say? Bad pizza. You're deluding yourselves. That is why Paul says, of all the things you could say when he says live in a manner worthy, make every effort to preserve unity. Because it is so easy not to. So would you do this? Would you stand with me? We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together.